I'd like to welcome you to Faith, and uh, for any first-time guests here, for uh, we are in a message series on uh, Acts of the Apostles, and particularly looking at disciple-making movements from Acts this month. Uh, last week, my brother Chuck was here, and he he presented uh, the Apostle Peter as one who God or Christ used to lead a disciple-making movement, uh, and in unfolding Acts, we. We, he, re, he reminded us that uh, Christ chooses uh, weak, failing, faltering, uh, weak uh, men and women to lead this movement, as Peter was, uh, that Christ gives us a clear uh, and accessible gospel presentation uh, that we might follow him, and that through uh, this gospel message, he is making an impact in the world. And so... Uh, he read Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is kind of what we would call kind of the pure uh, picture of the early church, and particularly Acts uh, 42 to 47, that reveals for us what we would consider to be what a healthy church looks like. Uh, it said that 3,000 uh, had, uh, had, had come to repent of their sins, and they were added. They became like members of this church of Jerusalem, 3,000 were added to the original 120 uh, disciples, which was quite uh, an experience and must have been a challenge to know how to help disciple all of these new believers. But it says that they devoted themselves, they gave themselves to the uh, apostles' teaching, uh, to uh, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and worship, and to, uh, to prayer. And that God was doing amazing things through uh, the apostles and through signs and wonders. And, and it says that uh, they, uh, in community, they sold their possessions and goods and they gave to anyone who had need. And they met regularly in the temple and also in their homes. Uh, they met in large group meetings, not probably different from here, in the temple courts. And they met in their homes, like in our community groups. And, and that God was uh, blessing them and was adding to their numbers daily, those who were being saved. And so every uh, time we do a Discovery Faith uh, kind of series, we, we do a review of this particular passage and say we never want to leave uh, the mission and the vision that was given here. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll be uh, advertising in the near future the next Discovery series on, on uh, exploring membership at Faith. But this picture of the early church is one that, we believe is, uh, is given to us by the Lord in the scriptures. And as we uh, continue in the outflow of Acts in the disciple-making movement, uh, we believe that God is moving in fresh ways, uh, fresh ways of planting uh, disciples into making communities, which uh, really is what the church is about. And so today I'm going to explore with you the marks of disciple-making movements uh, from Acts chapter 3. Not only that we would be aware of how God is moving, but also that we might align our own hearts and lives accordingly. Let's look at Acts chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. 
And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, This past Friday... Uh, our mayor, Catherine Pugh, uh, named Daryl DeSosa, a 30-year veteran of the Baltimore Police Department, as the new police commissioner, replacing former Commissioner Davis. And um, in the uh, mayor's address, she said that Davis was a hardworking man, but she said that she was impatient. She said, we need violent reduction faster than, it, than was going down. And she said, we are not achieving the pace of progress that our residents have every right to expect in the weeks since we ended what was nearly a record year for homicides in the city of Baltimore. And Pugh said that she had asked DeSouza to be creative, to be creative in reducing homicides and other crime. She said, crime is now spilling out all over the city and we've got to focus, so I am charging this commissioner and his staff to get on top of it to reduce the numbers and to reduce them quickly. And new Commissioner DeSouza said he immediately started a new initiative and he, send, he sent a surplus of officers in waves to target hot spots, major traffic corridors, and violent repeat offenders in order to drive out violence. Now, more creative policing may be more effective in reducing crime than former attempts here in Baltimore. But I recently read an account of the most significant and creative crime reduction reduction initiative, and it wasn't led by police departments. It was led by Christians in prayer meetings. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Edwin Orr, a PhD at Oxford University, became professor at the School of World Missions at Fuller Theological Seminary, He had a focus on church revival and renewal, and he presented account after account 
of the revolutionary social transformation that occurred in cities and even nations as a result of God moving through spiritual awakenings where people were converted and where revival had taken place and God was moving in response to believers gathering for prayer. Uh, he quoted uh, Dr. Pearson. He says, There has never been a spiritual awakening in any country or locality that did not begin with united prayer. And he talked about the second great awakening that occurred between 1792 and 1800 that resulted in the abolition of slavery, public education, Bible societies, missionary movements, and many other social benefits. He spoke about the revival of 1905. It was reported that at Yale... In 1905, 25% of the student body were enrolled in prayer meetings and Bible studies. As far as churches were concerned, the ministers of Atlantic City, he said, reported that of the population of 50,000, there were only 50 adults left unconverted. And he said in Portland, Oregon, 240 major stores closed from 11 to 2 each day to enable people to attend prayer meetings signing an agreement so that no one could, would cheat and stay open. <laughs> he spoke about this Welsh revival that began in 1904 through a prayer movement where a former coal miner by the name of Evan Roberts, who was studying for the ministry, prayed, Oh God, bend me. He could not concentrate on his studies, and he went to the principal of that college and explained, I keep hearing a voice that tells me I must go home and speak to our young people in my home church. And uh, Principal Phillips, uh, he asked, is that the voice of the devil or is that the voice of the spirit? <laughs> and uh, the principal, Rob, uh, principal Phillips answered, the devil never gives orders like that. Uh, <clears throat> you can have a week off. And so he went back home to Ligor, and, he, and, and this is in Wales, and, and he announced to the pastor, I've come to preach. Well, the pastor wasn't that convinced and, uh, and asked him, how about speaking at the prayer meeting on Monday night? Uh, well, he came to the prayer meeting, but he didn't let him preach that Monday night. But he told the praying people, our young brother, Evan Roberts, feels he has a message for you if you care to wait. So 17 people waited behind and were impressed by the directness of this young man's words. Evan Roberts told the fellow members, I have a message for you from God. And he said these four things. You must confess any known sin to God and put any wrong done to others right. Second, you must put away any doubtful habit. Third, you must obey the Spirit promptly. And finally, you must confess your faith to Christ publicly. By 10 o'clock, he said, all 17 had responded. The pastor was so pleased that, uh, about it. He asked him, how about speaking at our mission service tomorrow night? How about speaking at our midweek service Wednesday night? And he preached all week and was asked to stay another week. And Dr. Orr says, and then the break came. Now, the Welsh papers were usually very, fairly dull on church matters, but suddenly reported this. Great crowds of people drawn to Lagor 
The large church was packed with people trying to get in. Shopkeepers closed early to find a place. A reporter was sent down, and what he described vividly what he saw, a strange meeting which closed at 4.25 a.m., and even then people did not seem willing to go home. A British summary, I felt that this was no ordinary gathering. On Sunday, every church was filled. And the movement went like a tidal wave over Wales, and in five months, apparently there were 100,000 people converted through the country. The social impact, he said, was astounding. Judges were presented with white gloves, not a case to try, no robberies, no burglaries, no rapes, no murders, no embezzlements, nothing. District councils held emergency meetings to discuss what to do with the police now that they were unemployed. <clears throat> no, in, in one place, the sergeant of police was sent for and asked, what do you do with your time? He replied, before the revival, we had two main jobs, to prevent crime and to control crowds, as at football games. Since the revival started, there is practically no crime, so we just go with the crowds. The counselor asked, what does that mean? The sergeant replied, you know where the crowds are. They are packing out the churches. But how does that affect the police? He was told, we have 17 police in our station, but we have three quartets. And if any church wants a quartet to sing, they simply call the police station. <laughs> if you go to Wikipedia and or research the revival in Wales. It is a remarkable account. And apparently this revival swept Wales and Britain and Scandinavia, Germany, North America, Australia, Africa, Brazil, Mexico, Chile. Or says, always, as always, it began through a movement of prayer. Now who would have imagined that praying believers could have more capacity to positively reduce crime than a police department. Believer, you have much more capacity to impact the health of this great city than you may be aware of. Acts records for us some of the social impact of prayer and disciple-making movement in the cities of that day. In Acts 8, it speaks of the results of Deacon Philip's ministry in Samaria, and it says, so there was great joy in that city. Now, you and I can't make a revival or mass conversions happen. We can't put up a tent and a sign and say, we're going to have a revival this week and expect that the Holy Spirit somehow is going to do some kind of magic. Revivals are a work of God. But we can be aware how God uses and how he brings revivals, and what God uses to advance disciple-making movements. We can do our part. We can take the wood. We can build the timbers, and we can pray for fire to come down from heaven. And so today, I, I would like to briefly, like to briefly, for us to consider the marks of disciple-making movements that I believe are consistent in Acts, and mostly presented to us here in Acts 3, that we might be more aware of the center of God's activity in the world as he is seeking to build a disciple-making movement through his church and that we would align ourselves accordingly. And so we see here in Acts 3 that he gives us three marks of a disciple-making movement, prayer, power, and proclamation. 
And so prayer. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. We've, there's never an occasion where we ever saw like Peter doing something like this as kind of a, a form or a habit or, or something that he engaged in regularly. But as we think about Peter's life, you know, one of the last times that we remember him praying, uh, he had fallen asleep. You know, Jesus asked him and the other disciples to stay awake. Uh, can't they just stay awake for an hour in his greatest need in that Gethsemane experience? But, uh, but Peter, like the other apostles, you know, they, they struggled with the whole nature of prayer, but they witnessed their Savior. They witnessed their Lord praying. They witnessed how Jesus would get up early in the morning and go off and pray. They witnessed how he would like get away from the crowds, you know, go up in the, in the hills, and he would spend time with his father. What was Jesus doing? Jesus made a habit of getting away so that he could hear his father's voice, so that he could be reminded that he is his beloved son, uh, that he also would hear the instructions of his father. Jesus would uh, tell the disciples that uh, he only does what he hears his father tell him what to do. Uh, and so he spends that time. Well, the disciples saw this, and they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us how I, we need to do that. Well, we know that they were weak in prayer, but after the resurrection, uh, and Jesus spent those 40, over 40 days speaking and teaching to them about the kingdom of God, uh, when he ascended on high, he told them to wait in Jerusalem, and they did. They waited in Jerusalem. That, that means that they, they gathered in prayer, and we find in Acts 1.14 where they gathered. There's 120 disciples with Mary and the other women, and they prayed, and then the Holy Spirit came down and uh, filled them with the Spirit and with power. And so what we see is this movement of prayer, and in that first occasion we see that 3,000 people came to Christ, and it all began with a movement of prayer. Uh, and if you look at Acts and the unfolding of Acts, you see that in every occasion where there is a movement of people coming to Christ, it begins as a movement of prayer first. And so here in Acts 3, we see Peter and John going up to the temple uh, to pray at this hour. At the end of this, uh, of the, of this narrative, it says... But many who heard, and this is in Acts 4.4, 4, but many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. And that's just the men. So there was women, there was children. This was a mass number of people giving their lives to Christ, repenting and coming to faith. And then we look at uh, Acts 4.31, where the believers gather together uh, in prayer. And we find that they... The, the key thing that they asked for is that they would speak the word of God boldly. And it says that this is exactly what had happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And we look at Acts chapter 6, and that was one of the first crises of the church where the Grecian uh, Jews, the widows, were being overlooked, and it was a big crisis of justice in the church, and they gathered together to address that, that matter, and they, and they prayed that God would direct their hearts to the officers that would lead that mercy ministry. And it says in verse 7, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, the large number of priests became obedient to the faith. 
In uh, Acts 14, it says that when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. And then in Acts 16, we see, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, we see with Paul, it says Paul, I think it was Silas, they went to outside the city gate to find a place to pray. And in that experience of prayer, uh, the whole engagement with Lydia, the, the woman uh, dealer with, in purple, uh, had come to faith. And then we see the next section as well. What I want you to see here is that every movement of God to convert, to build disciples, all begins with a foundation of God's people praying, devoted to prayer, hearing the Father's voice, knowing that they're beloved sons and daughters, getting guidance, and praying after his kingdom. Uh, a couple years ago, um, we had a leadership retreat at Faith. And in that leadership retreat, I shared uh, an experience that I had in high school. I, I became a believer through the ministry of Young Life in high school, and my brother and I did, and, and we felt a burden to pray for our school. And so a group of us high schoolers asked if we could meet in the office at the print near the principal just to pray uh, so every Tuesday morning we would gather uh, before school started and it was my brother my Chuck uh, and then this uh, pastor's son named Peter Bissett um, Debbie who is my brother's wife and maybe a few others and we just gathered we would just pray and we kind of prayed for big things we prayed for, we would think about who are the hardest cases in this school that we think would never come to Christ. And we started praying for them. Uh, we didn't see anybody that there come to faith that year, but Debbie tracked those people that we prayed for, and over time, they all gave their lives to Christ. And we prayed that God would give us the opportunity to have the gospel presented to the whole school in some kind of assembly. And somehow, this school was 60% Jewish, the principal is Orthodox Jewish, and the, somehow the school allowed us to call an assembly, and they actually made it a mandatory assembly. And so they said, you can do whatever you want. We called a, uh, our friend who was in Columbia Bible College to come. He was leading a music group, and they came and presented a great program, and there was a, one man in the school that came out of the New York gangs that had a tremendous conversion experience, and he came and he shared his testimony. And Steve Esses, my friend, gave this presentation and, and invited any, any students that wanted to give their lives to Christ to come forward. And, and uh, it was quite a moment. And uh, there were a lot of upset teachers. They said, you have violated the, the vision of church and state at this meeting. And we didn't really know a lot about all that. But... <clears throat> The vice principal came up to us with tears streaming down his face. He said, this is the best Easter present you could have ever given this school. And I shared this at, the, at this leadership retreat. Anada came up and says, why aren't we doing this at Faith Christian Fellowship? Why aren't we meeting like Tuesday mornings just to pray? And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm game if you want. And he talked to Jerry, and, and Jerry was up for it, and and, uh, and so a few others, and so this was just kind of a quiet thing. So a bunch of us were started, started to pray. Michael Hearn was part of that team. And, uh, and so it was just kind of word of mouth. 
then Reuben, when he moved into the community, he started to come. And then uh, Reuben had this idea, why don't we do this every morning of the week, like Monday through Friday? I said, well, okay. Uh, so we, did, we did, have not publicized it. We didn't make it public uh, because we don't want to, like, start something that we don't have leadership committed to. Uh, but uh, Jerry and the team have said we're, we're committed to making sure there's a leader here every morning, 6.30 to 7, and to pray for outreach and to pray for the kingdom. And so that's been happening, and the uh, session, the elders just made it an official ministry. So I am announcing this for anybody who would like to join the Centennial the Sentinel prayer meeting. Sentinel is a kind of a guard to watch. And, uh, and so from 637, presently it's meeting in the White House conference room. And, you know, you might uh, just want to explore it. You might, you know, see if this uh, is something that you would be encouraged to come to. We don't want to make anybody feel guilty for not coming, but we want to extend an invitation to all. Um, this is what I know. Uh, since we started praying, I have personally witnessed in this body uh, three pretty major uh, movements of God in people's lives coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, one brother uh, lived in, nearby in a neighborhood. He never knew anybody in this church, and he saw the sign, and he just felt compelled to start coming to this church. And he started to come, and he experienced the love of this fellowship, got enfolded, gave his life to Christ, and was being discipled in this church. And I can tell you story after story, and the reality is, is that I believe that God is moving through dependent, prevailing prayer. Uh, he's using, I know, the uh, intercessor's prayer, and Burnett's praying here on Sunday mornings, and I know in the community groups are praying. But here's the thing. All the movements of acts and disciple-making and the movements of revival in the nation is all because it starts with prevailing dependent prayer. And so this is what we find is the first, uh, the first calling and the first activity of the marks of a disciple-making movement. The second is power. And so Peter said to uh, this, this man that was 40 years lame, with a congenital birth defect, he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And so he took him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And he began to leap and walk and praising God, and the people were astounded. You know, the second mark of a disciple-making movement is God is doing wonders. He's doing something that is out of this world. Uh, there is a transformation. Now, obviously, people will say, well, of course, this was the time of the apostles. You know, the time of Jesus and the apostles was a time where there was an extraordinary amount of miracles and signs and wonders to confirm the reality of who Jesus was. And there is truth to that. Uh, the magnitude of the intensification of miracles and wonders was certainly prevalent uh, during that period of time. But at the same time, uh, there are wonders and signs that God reveals consistently throughout history that he is the God 
who has penetrated history through uh, transforming uh, people's lives. And so when you see the passage in Acts 2 about the people selling their goods and possessions uh, and giving to anyone who had need, that is a remarkable social transformation. And you see uh, later on in Ephesus where they gave up uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, particular uh, uh, things that they used for uh, their other false religions. And, and there were sacrifices given like that. And all those things are saying something unusual has happened to these people. There's transformed lives, the way they are living. Uh, women and men... Uh, Slave nor free, uh, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian, all these people were gathering together. He was uniting. And when we think about the unity of the body of Christ across all the divides, that, by the way, is a sign of the kingdom of God. It's a sign that, you know, when Jesus, if you look at uh, John, the whole flow of John is these seven miracles, starting with the miracle of Cana. But when Jesus prays, before he goes to the cross, he prays for one thing, how the world would know that he was sent, and that is that the disciples would be one as the Father is one with the Son. And so your unity and your commitment to processing uh, the hard things across the divides and being committed and saying the blood of Jesus is greater than the divisions of this world, that what unites us is greater than what divides us, and we are committed to being a family of God, brothers and sisters. And, uh, and when that happens, it's a sign that the kingdom of God has come. I remember years ago, there was a whole group of people that visited our church who were professions of the Baha'i faith. The Baha'i faith is a faith that believes in the equality of all faiths, but also the unity of people is like their highest value. And so they had heard about this church, and they started to come because this was like, this is what they are about. <laughs> we are showing forth a unity that is at the heart of there, but what's at the power of our unity is Jesus Christ. And so that's a witness, that's a sign. What you see in the movement of, of Acts is one sign after the next that is showing forth the wonders and the reality of Jesus who has come down. But then we see the gospel proclamation. And so, so Peter takes this opportunity in verse 12. He says, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so what we see here is that Peter is taking this opportunity to present the reasons for that power and that wonder. Uh, Christianity, and this is uh, Martin Lloyd Jones said, Christianity is primarily not a teaching. It is not a moral, ethical religion. Christianity is principally a phenomena. It is principally God coming, the God of the universe coming down and intersecting our history 
through signs and wonders. Uh, and so he's a covenant God. He's a God who was from creation. And so uh, now Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience, and so he's anchoring this in the history of Israel. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And so what we know is this, is that this God isn't, didn't just begin with Jesus. He didn't begin with Jesus. Jesus becomes the center of things, but he begins with history. This is a God who's intersected. This isn't just a philosophy. This isn't just a teaching. This is the God of history who is intersected, who is engaged with people. He is a covenant God. He's a God of promise. And so he has come. And uh, in this, he confronts the listeners, and he actually gives four dishonors that they, they, uh, that they made, that, you know, you delivered over whom you delivered, who you denied in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy Spirit, the righteous one, and you killed the author of life. It's pretty, it's like, this is the bad news. You did this to Jesus. Uh, but, and that, we didn't have time to go into the next section, but he tells them, uh, but God foretold this through the prophets uh, that Jesus would suffer and die. Uh, but through repentance, uh, you could experience uh, refreshment. You can experience salvation. And so he calls them to repentance. But the gospel proclamation is, is, is not a talking just about uh, a teaching among different teachings, a better philosophy among better philosophy. It is about the living God of history who has penetrated our lives, our history he is the creator of the universe. He has demonstrated himself over and over again through signs, miracles, and wonders. And he's continuing to advance his kingdom, and nothing can stop it. The Jewish community tried to stop it. The leaders, the Roman government tried to stop it. But the kingdom of God continues uh, to advance. And so, as we uh, think about disciple-making movements, uh, we need to recognize those three marks. Where are we in the prayer uh, of being faithful in prayer, as in prevailing prayer? Where are we uh, in, in, in supporting the power of God in, in our lives, uh, the signs that he wants to do uh, in, in his fellowship of the community, and having a clarity of proclamation? I want to ask you something. If somehow this, there were 3,000 new believers that decided that they wanted to be part of this church, would you be ready? <laughs> would, you, would you be ready, believer, to like help this new believer grow in their faith? Uh, this must have been a remarkable thing. Well, I know that many are, but some of us would like to learn more about how can we be ready? How can we be equipped? Uh, I've had the ability to be able to call people who, who, to, to walk with new believers, and we need to encourage each other in this. And so, uh, actually, on uh, February the 11th, is a Sunday from 5.30 to 7, I'm just, Marie and I are going to invite anybody over, we'll have a potluck kind of dinner discussion about um, discipleship practices for new believers and seekers. And you might be a new believer yourself, but you would like to grow even as you're growing. And I just would like to invite anybody that would like to come just for an informal discussion. We'll try to present some resources that can help each one and hear maybe some testimonies of how God 
is using uh, different ways to help strengthen us in our disciple-making movement. So that when that spirit moves <laughs> and brings people, that you will be ready. We want to be a ready church uh, for his movement in our midst. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you give us uh, these pictures of your movement in the kingdom. Lord, prayer, power, proclamation. But we also didn't get to the reality that there will be persecution that follows. And, and yet, Lord, even in that, uh, you move your kingdom forward. So I pray that you would uh, just equip us. I pray that you would give us an anticipation. I pray that you would remove whatever is hindering us from being in the center of your uh, disciple-making movements in the world. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would just give us a greater sense of your love for us and uh, of Jesus, your dying love for us, that we might uh, just give our hearts to you. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.